This podcast was made possible by our Leadership Circle members, Senior Fellows Susan Orr, Randy Pond, and Lisa Sonsini. Class Matchers, Greg Avis, Ned Barnhold, Ann DeBusk, Madeline Fackler, Chuck Getchke, Karen King, Sing Kung, Dottie Hayes, George Marcus, C.S. Park, and Steve Smith. And a special thanks to ALF Classes 31 and 24 for their tremendous support of American Leadership Forum's 30th anniversary campaign. Welcome to The Dialogue. I'm Suzanne St. John Crane. In April of 2018, Santa Clara County Supervisor Dave Cortezzi's office hosted a firearms and safety summit where over 300 community members came together to talk about guns. He enlisted ALF's help in facilitating a participatory dialogue led by tabletop facilitators, over a dozen of whom were ALF senior fellows. The goal? For attendees to leave understanding, and perhaps even building community, with those who had opposing views. In the liberal bubble of Northern California, the right conditions for dialogue brought together a surprisingly diverse cross-section of gun enthusiasts, NRA supporters, as well as gun reform advocates and anti-gun activists. I spoke with Supervisor Cortezzi, an ALF senior fellow, about the genesis of this idea and how he hopes to scale real dialogues like this to combat the divisive, polarizing rhetoric we see more of in this country every day. I also spoke with two attendees from the summit, Raina Ritchie, a local tech professional and an avid gun enthusiast, and Walter Wilson, a longtime community activist and partner at the Minority Business Consortium, about what they heard, what they learned, and where they had an uncommon meeting of the minds with other attendees and each other around guns. Let's listen. Well, I want to thank the three of you for joining me today and uh, helping to spur this conversation, continue this conversation uh, with the ALF Senior Fellows Network and beyond. So, Supervisor Cortese, I want to start with you. You're part of a lot of public meetings. <laughs> a lot of meetings, a lot of public conversations, a lot of community gatherings. What made this different from your typical facilitated public meeting and why this topic, why this format? Well, thanks. It's a great question. You know, we knew this would be a contentious issue um, going in. It, it has been for years. And when you're in public service full time, like I am, you start to realize more and more that the extremes are kind of controlling the, the dialogue, especially on a national level. And, and when you have big national issues um, that are contentious and you know, big institutional contributors to the conversation at a national level, you know, it's sometimes things start to get, um, you know, extreme, if you will, in terms of people's positions. And I think that's probably the best word to use. Things become positional as opposed to um, what is your interest? What interests are you really trying to satisfy? What interests are you really trying to protect? Um, American Leadership Forum, um, became a partner in this right from the beginning and you know two of the guru facilitators Greg and, and Lawrence really worked with us in a fairly short time frame after Parkland because we didn't want you know um, a lot of grass to grow under our feet while we're trying to figure out how to respond we want to get people together soon so we went to a tabletop format right from the beginning I mean the vision for this was no town hall meeting I mean we really don't want pe people to feel like they had to compete and jockey for two minutes at a microphone and get as much in as they possibly could and basically talk at uh, elected officials or at, at their neighbor. Rather, we wanted to have true, what I call two-way communication dialogue. And the best way to do that is, you know, randomly select who's going to sit at the table, sit them down, 
you know, eight or ten to a table and say, stay glued down here for about six hours and, you know, let's facilitate some real dialogue. Right. And you sought out alternative viewpoints. This wasn't a build it and they will come kind of a thing. It was very much about let's go actually strategically find people that have different viewpoints that care about our community and pull them in. Were you skeptical of the ability to really um, diversify the room? You know, for probably only the second or third time in my 25-year career as an elected official, I was, I was a little more fearful than anything. And what I was fearful of might not be the same thing that other participants were fearful of. What I was fearful of is that despite a balanced outreach effort, we might not get a balanced turnout because we did not screen people. We just said, you know, if we ask the, the diverse groups in our community to show up or send someone or invite them, make sure the invitations are, are broad brushed, we should get broad brushed participation. We didn't know that was going to happen. Secondly, we knew that in the first five minutes of this kind of, of exercise, um, that there'd be a little bit of downtime, there'd be a little bit of time for as people walked in before we actually got a chance to let them know what was going to happen, what the ground rules are. Um, and in that little bit of time, that window of time, um, there was some risk that the whole thing would just blow up. You know, arguments, um, you know, somebody accidentally insults somebody else, and the next thing you know, you have a room of 300 people just going off on each other. So. I know that that may sound kind of blunt, but that's that's what rhetoric leads to. That's what non-dialogue leads to. A, a lot of times, we see it in our nation almost every day now. One of the things that um, I wanted to have happen is, no matter how intense the dialogue was, and no matter what the difference in viewpoints were, um, I wanted people to walk out, even as viewpoint opposites, respecting each other, um, and and perhaps even in some case befriending each other in um, and that really happened. I want to talk to two people that were there and participated. Uh, Raina was a participant and Walter was a tabletop facilitator. Uh, at as, the, well as, as well as a participant. As well as a participant. You can't really just facilitate, right? <laughs> You're going to be participating. <laughs> and Raina, I'm going to I'm going to start with you. So you are a Second Amendment supporter and would it be fair to call you sort of a gun enthusiast or hobbyist? At least, yeah. At um, least, okay. Yeah, I grew up in the Bay Area. Um, my yeah. uh, my father at a at a young age, uh, you know, spent a lot of time teaching me to shoot air rifles and twenty twos and you know small caliber and things like that, and that developed into a into a lifelong interest, uh, where um, you know joined a lot of groups and ad advocacy groups, and um, and now uh, when things like this come up, it's a, it's a, it's a very interesting topic for me to participate in. How did it turn from a hobby to advocacy? Yeah, well, it started out as a you know a backyard thing with air rifles, uh, and then turned into um, you know just a more and more uh, competitive and uh, you know proficiency aspects and things. Maybe I don't sit in that camp where I feel like I sit on one extreme side or the other. Even being an advocate, a, a enthusiast, as I believe you as you said, uh, there's still things that you can be looking at that uh, you know worthwhile discussions to have where you don't need to look at everything as a black and white issue. And, and there are meaningful dialogues that can happen. What did you hope to contribute and what did you hope to get out of it? Well, initially I thought when I was showing up that I was going to be going to defend positions and then when I read through the, uh, the, the, the context of the, um, and the, and the format, then I saw, okay, it, the real ask here is sit down and have dialogues and that seems so refreshing to me uh, compared to what, what we see on a daily basis. 
uh, you know, not long ago, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm walking to uh, do a San Jose Sharks game, and I'm walking through the middle of one of the, the uh, I think it was a March for Our Lives event or something like that, and, you know, all these people with these signs that are just so inflammatory and things, and I get, you know, I, I get, you know, I, I have a heart for what, what you know, what, what's behind what they're doing, but uh, I'm going, hey, I can't engage with any of these people right now. As I, I read signs and things, I'm like, I would love to have a conversation with these people, but this is not a forum where you can do that. And it's no good to sit there and shout back and forth across the street at each other. So when an event comes along where you can actually say, hey, let's, let's inform and educate uh, and also see if there's some opportunities that are within the boundaries of things that people wouldn't be fighting. Uh, you know, things that maybe there are things that we can do that are not constitutional. And, and that's that middle we have to find. And you can't find that without talking. And Walter, you attended the summit. I'm going to ask you the same question. I mean, can you point to a few key events in your life, in your life's journey that, that shaped your views? And were you able to, now this is tough for me sometimes, were you able to pause on advocacy around your own personal views to, to uh, open up real dialogue? I used to go hunt with my dad. We used mm. to hunt venison and wild boar for food. You know, we, we just left home and we'd eat it. We had a large family. And so that was that was one of my first experiences with guns and gun safety, and um, and I recognized, you know, from my I lived in the city. We grew up in San Francisco. And in fact, we grew up in San Francisco in the Haight-Ashbury during the Summer of Love. And so, you know, that's where you swore up and down. Peace was invented. The word peace was invented there. I mean, the signs were everywhere. Where were you hunting? Um, <laughs> we would, we would go out out Hollister and all kinds of places. Wherever we find wild boar and venison, mm-hmm. sometimes we go across the state, um, but. You know, it was fun. First of all, it, I had to get over the idea that I'm killing this animal. But the other thing is that, you know, he said, listen, and this is what I learned from him, you, you kill something, you eat it. You don't just kill for the sake of putting the, the head on the wall or something like that. So it's a very different perspective than people who we saw out there that were hunting for the pur- purpose of game. We're hunting almost like for survival, to be honest with you. Yeah. You know, because there's eight of us, my father was working, and especially during off season because he was a construction worker, because construction was off and on. But the other thing that struck me as a young man growing up in the hate is I'm like 12 years old and I'm looking at TV and I'm seeing the civil rights action going on in the South with Dr. King and those people marching. And I'm like, oh, that's a proud moment. Then I saw them get dog sicked on them and get hit in the head with axe handles and they just kept on marching, blood streaming down their faces. That, that horrified me, absolutely horrified me. I'm like, I wouldn't be one of those people for a fact. I'm not that person. I would never be one of those people walking down having white folks spit on me or any of that stuff, it just would never happen. <laughs> you know, why would you sit up there and go for this kind of stuff? I wasn't even a teenager yet when I felt this. And what, what was most um, impressive to me is when the Black Panther Party went to Sacramento and stood on those steps with those shotguns. And at the time it was legal, by the way. They changed the law the very next week. They said, oh, we can't be having black people with guns because even though it's been legal, you know, forever, the majority of this country, you know, you can have, you can have guns and open carry and all this. That's, that's the country, country we live in. So that was that that impressed me as well, but at the end of the day, I just wanted to make sure that you know that I was able to protect our home. We always had a shotgun in our home, and that's the part of the Second Amendment that I really uh, that I really support is the ability to be able to protect your family. Surprisingly, I think the county did. I, mean, I think they did a thoughtful job in getting the people, the right people there. First of all, some people I never seen before, I never met, but they had some rich dialogue to engage. And I learned a lot. The other thing that, that was interesting to me about this summit and about the whole attention on this, you know, black people have been dying from guns for years. Yeah. Where's our summit? Where's the big emergency around all these black folks and kids and teenagers who died with guns? But wait a minute. 
now they're killing white kids. This is a crisis, mm. and that's the way this country mm. works. I mean, race is huge. Even now, in this in this county here, right now, you know, they're, they're talking about cultural competency and all that. But my understanding is that the people doing it don't want to mention the word race. So how do you do that? How do you talk mm. about addressing race without mentioning race? And and this depends on who you talk to, because I'm doing yep. work with public health, and we're doing work around the very same issue. But race is one of the first words we talk about. You can't deal with something unless you look at it. So, you know, we're sitting at this table, and I, as a facilitator, I'm a facilitator. Um, another person was facilitating with me. She was scared to death of guns. And then she told me she just discovered that her boyfriend she was dating, who was a former Secret Service or something, was driving around with a gun in his car, and she was horrified. And I'm like, you know, I should take you to the range. Unless you've really gone and shot guns, you probably can't appreciate it uh, mm. in that way. That is enjoyable, you know, and um, it's almost like a stress reliever for me anyway. At the table we were at, so we had a, uh, a school administrator. We had a guy with a beard. I'm like, you NRA, right? He said, definitely. But he has a wife who's a school teacher. We had another older lady here. Um, um, she was, I think she was a community advocate. There's like eight of us or nine of us at the table. Really, really good cross-section. Right. And so when you listen to the guy from the NRA talk about, you know, well, I think, you know, gun, open carry should be okay in California. And he wanted to talk about his wife being a small person and how if somebody attacks her, she should be able to defend herself. And, you know, I'm like, okay, that's an interesting perspective. But that was a strong point that he made. But I don't think fear is a good thing. I don't think it's a good motivator to be saying you want to gun guns because of fear. I think that as a preventative thing, yeah, but, but to say that you're fearful something could happen to somebody in your family, that's, that's, how, that's how accidents and things happen. But the dialogue we had was rich dialogue. I mean, we, everybody was respectful, open, and honest. And um, it was very, it was much more than I expected. Both of you gentlemen talk about how this was something you did as a kid with your dads, right? I mean, this is something that was part of your upbringing and your experience as, as kids, as children. And then, Walter, you're talking about what you're seeing on TV and that, mm -hmm. that guns ended up being something that was that were necessary, really, for protection. Exactly. How do you how do you square with that and process that when you see what's going on in cities where, as you said, there are you know, young African-American boys that are using guns on each other in their community and they're so available. How right. do you sit with both of those? This country is built on violence. We sit up here and we watch this president and the president before him, the president before him, drop bombs on people of color, because that's the only people they drop bombs on, so let's get real about that. They ain't dropping no bombs in Russia. The fact of the matter is, we sit up here, you know, in our nice clean places, while they dropping bombs on these people, destroying just just obliterating whole families. And we, now we're concerned about somebody walking through our neighborhoods with guns. We are built on a culture of violence. That's what America's all about. And anybody who tells you anything differently is living in a bubble. Now, I can appreciate that, you know, there's different perspectives about violence and guns, but I don't, there's more guns in this country than there are people. 33% of Americans own guns. And of that 33%, 2% owns half the guns. <laughs> you know what that means? That means you got a small group of people running around here like militias hoarding hmm. all these guns. Hmm. And that's that's the scary part to me. And so, you know, I want to make sure that I'm able to protect my family, so I think that's key. Hmm. So so the idea of, you know, these kids running around killing each other has been going on for years. But there's never been a crisis. There's never been yeah. anybody saying, hey, let's, let's, let's sit down and talk about that hmm. because they're black kids. You walk in these schools and start killing these white kids, all of a sudden it's a crisis. And the sad part is, it's like people people don't care. I mean, these are children. I, I'm not, I'm the children, sitting in the class, five, six-year-old children. Yeah. 
that's and the it's tragic. They're kids. Yeah, absolutely tragic. I just you know, Rena, have you ever thought about this issue the way that that Walters thought about it? There's definitely a huge aspect of self-defense that's that's been major for me. Uh, I grew up in South Hayward, to be specific, um, on a street that was you know drive-bys constantly and things like that during the '80s. Um, and uh, you know it was it was always the get down, stay you know stay away from the windows uh, perspective. Um, well, you know, while while me, I was young enough to just be doing target shooting and things like that. Mm-hmm. You know, parents are, are you know trying to make sure that they protect themselves and things in the house. It was very scary neighborhood, very really a scary experience growing up. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I don't have a lot of uh, uh, experience with um, you know, race issues as it pertains to firearms or anything like that. I, I, I can't touch that. Dave, I don't know if you have anything to add here as you were floating around kind of the, the uh, different tables at the summit. What were some of the stories that you heard that, that impacted you? One of the last conversations I had, in fact, I, I met Raina there walking out the door. Uh, I met Walter walking out the door as well, but I, I met Raina and he was standing next to a public health advocate um, he was sitting next to a couple of women who, uh, one of them may have been the same one you're referring to. Mm-hmm. She said, I've, I've never in my life shaken hands, let alone met somebody who had multiple guns in their home. And I didn't know how I would respond to that. And I didn't know how I would deal with that. And now I've, I've just come to appreciate, you know, their point of view. Um, I wish that it wasn't so desperately needed in our county, in our state, in our country right now, that we simply break through um, this isolation that we've gotten ourselves into, where people who are on one side of an issue, you know, sort of uh, recuse themselves among people who share their point of view, and people with the other (laughs) point of view recuse themselves among people who are of like views. And the more we do that, the more we distance ourselves from the ordinary relationships that make up kinship and community. You know, the NRA is a lot more than, you know, these crazy gun people over here. And and the people who are really, um, really anti-gun advocates is a lot more than, you know, these extremists over here. And there's a lot of people in between there that are just reasonable, everyday thinking people. You know, the problem with the media is the extreme views dominate the media and not the real people in between. And that's what happens. And so I'm hoping that, you know, in this podcast we're doing, it, it really captures the fact that one of the reasons we're able to have these, this camaraderie is because the majority of people are in between. The majority of people are not extremists on either end. The majority of people are somewhere in between. And, and I wanted to just make sure that, to leave with that because, like, as I said, the guy who seems to be like the most... Um, extreme guy at our table wasn't extreme at all, really. I mean, he was just you know a regular guy who you know has a wife who's a school teacher and and um, you know has a, wants to have a family and, and do the same thing everybody else wants to do. Right. Rainer, was there anybody that you sat with that absolutely you had a different viewpoint from? Did you walk away going, "Hey, I hadn't thought of that," or "Wow, I kind of I understand where that person's coming from. Don't agree, but boy, I can I can empathize." Most of the time that, that I spent talking with, was with the uh, with the, the school administrator, and uh, yeah, he was in in that camp of you know I don't see why anybody needs guns and we should ban guns everywhere in the country and, and and things like that. I think that we 
had at least a, a bit of a of, of a meeting of the minds where he was also similar to what uh, Supervisor Cortesi was saying about uh, having never met people who own guns and things. He's kind of like, oh, so you're a gun you're a gun owner. You, this is what this is what people are like. Oh, you're a real person. These aren't his words, of course, but this is kind of what I was hearing was right. this realization of. Well, wait a minute. I've never actually looked on the other side of the fence to see if that's a big scary dog or a little dog, or you know, you just don't really know uh, who it is that you're engaging with when you're when you're throwing bombs at each other, uh, metaphorically speaking. Polarization creates more polarization, and the middle becomes irrelevant because no one listens. You know, there. You know, it's it's the vocal the vocal minority on both ends, and and the completely silent and irrelevant. Uh, you know, majority. minority. I mean, majority. majority in sorry. The middle, right? Yeah, is, yeah, in, is right. in the middle, yeah. and then the more that these two ends do what they do, uh, you know, the left and right book, you know, bookends, you wind up just driving those people in those directions one way or the other. And it's so unhealthy. And Supervisor Cortezzi, do you see a path where the input and the conversation that you witnessed and were a part of can translate to some sort of um, policy decision by the county? So we brought back in our, our deputy county executive uh, who oversees public health after uh, the forum, we gave him all of the the notes and materials that um, that were recorded at the tables, not to build a case one way or the other, but to aggregate all that information into a report that really feels like um, a community report on, on the summit. We didn't have high hopes for um, a lot of concrete, you know, solutions or uh, magical remedies to come out of this beyond the dialogue, but some good ideas came up. You know, people make inquiries about things, uh, people who are not politicians, that just aren't even on the table. Uh, Raina, for example, um, uh, as he was walking out, said to me, um, why don't we have gun buybacks without the money? Why don't we just have amnesty for anyone who wants to turn in a gun at the sheriff's department? One of the reasons we don't do it every day as a buyback is because it would probably bankrupt us because they're very popular. People show yeah. up by the hundreds. Um, you know, you don't have to make a huge government appropriation just to make a service available uh, so that people who don't People who don't want to have guns on them are people who shouldn't have guns on them, probably, and they, they can get rid of them. The issues of domestic violence, the issues of self-infliction, um, suicide among teens, um, got a lot of, of sort of comprehensive attention by people around these tables, irrespective of where they are on the Bill of Rights or gun possession and ownership. The violence around guns, that, that really isn't about sporting uses, it really isn't about marksmen, it isn't about, it's about how does somebody get it, walk into, you know, uh, as a part of their journey, <laughs> a vendor or federal firearms dealer, walk right through a 10-day background check in California, navigate all the laws, um, but their own neighbors would say, I don't think they should have ever had a gun because of their, their state of mind. Yeah. Or they're 15 years old and they got from one from somebody who was able to navigate those rules and then ended up killing themselves. The majority, the vast majority, over 80%, if you look at the medical examiner coroner reports here in Santa Clara County, over 80% of their records of um, gun-inflicted deaths are self-inflicted in this county. So, meaning, what are we doing to deal with what we can deal with yeah. now 
without having to worry about what the federal government's doing or what the state government's doing. That was one of the things that I was noticing at the table is we, we shared a lot, a lot of sharing, a lot of good connection. We probably need something that can actually be taken back. And I said, okay, well, let me put a proposal out there. And that's what you were just referring to good about uh, about the ability to, you know, to, for, for safe surrender uh, of firearms mm -hmm. without the fear of reprisal or some type of prosecution or something like that taking place. We're uh, just a couple of business days away from the SB 880 assault weapons registration. Yeah coming in, into play and I have had so many discussions with people who have no idea that this is going on. You, you put it in your gun safe, it's in your closet what, or whatnot, and then you never think about it again. This thing passes, maybe you're not a member of the NRA, you're not getting all the mailings that I get every day, you know, uh, warning you about this stuff and trying to get you to participate either to fight it or to make sure you're complying with it at least. Um, and then people are going to wake up one day and go, wait, I had to do what? And they're going to they're gonna be, you know, the next thing that they're going to face is, am I going to get arrested exactly. when I try to turn this yeah. thing in? I had a friend who was in a position that uh, she unfortunately, you know, was, was considering taking her life. And um, she called me during the day one day and said, hey, I want to, you, know, um, you know, I need to talk with you. I, you know, I had a gun to my head this morning and you know, it, it, was a, it was a terrible situation. Um, and, uh, and after meeting with her, you know, we, we talked it through and we said, okay, well, you know, we need to relinquish this firearm. You, you, you really shouldn't have this. And then when we actually tried to get in touch with law enforcement at the city and county level, we had an experience that, that made us realize that we need to revisit how the engagement happens when you try to actually do something and you're trying to do the right thing without the need to change laws or anything like that. There's just things that you can do. You know, we had kinship. Kinship happened at, among 300 people, as Walter said, most of whom had never met each other before and had radically different viewpoints. Um, imagine, you know, well, so we should have another one of these. If there was a way for me to scale this in 50 states in the union right now and, and just get people together instead of marching, instead of having town hall meetings, having dialogue, um, I, I think we could have a real breakthrough in, in civic engagement. And, you know, American Leadership Forum stands for that and has the ability to help us do that. Additional support for American Leadership Forum comes from ARIS, Cisco Systems, Jim Baer, Microsoft, Sobrato Philanthropies, and Silver Lake. ALF is passionately committed to building diverse networks of leaders focused on personal and community transformation in order to create an inclusive and thriving Silicon Valley. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and subscribe to The Dialogue on iTunes or SoundCloud please visit us online at alfsv.org.